I tell you, it, it is just, uh, it's one of those, it's a good day. But before, before we get to any celebrations, before we pop the champagne and sing uh, a loud sin, we, uh, we got to get through this. So uh, strap in for our last gasp of 2023. I have more energy than you do, it seems like. There we go. All right. Our last gasp of 2023 together. I am giving, or I have been giving, I've been giving this day actually a lot more thought and prayer than I typically do for a, a New Year's Eve or a New Year's Day. Looking back over previous New Year's, and, and a lot of you were with me on those previous New Year's, I'm aware that I have approached New Year's as a holiday, as a concept, all of that. I've approached, or maybe I have not approached them effectively, and in some years, I have not really even approached it maturely, which is a shock, I'm sure, but it is possible. Now, in some years, you have likely experienced that, that I've, I've been dismissive and snarky as it relates to New Year's resolutions. Uh, in other years, I'm apathetic or ambivalent at best, and still in other years, I just punt altogether and I have someone else preach so I don't have to deal with it and I can take a week off of sermon prep. And so those are the typical ways that I celebrate New Year's. And so we're going to turn over a new leaf. There we go. Yeah, a little bit of excitement. There we go. Come on. That's good. The thing is, we've got to start it now because there's no way I'm staying up until midnight because I did that one time and I was like, you know, the clock turns and you're just like, all right, well, is, is that it? And so I don't do it anymore. I'll celebrate with whoever celebrates like at five o'clock, wherever that is, somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, it becomes a new year. That's my new year over the Atlantic Ocean. Um, anyway, 2023 though, definitely is a year that for me demands reflection. Honestly, this year has changed me more than most. This year I think has been uh, one of the, it's been a year of, of pressure and hardship that I don't remember experiencing, or at least not in, in this way. It's changed me because it's revealed something in me that I'm holding before Jesus as we close out this year and asking for forgiveness and healing and freedom. This year has felt like consistent pressure. When I look back over the, just, the, just the calendar, I see pressure and I see hardship. In the midst of that pressure and, and hard, hardship, I see the, this word kind of come forth, relentless, because it is felt a lot of times relentless. And, and the odd thing too is I can't really put my finger on maybe one thing that, that, that brought that up, but it just it, it feels that way in reflection over my experience of, of the year. And it also feels like, like there was a, a, a loss this past year that, that felt different than in years past. In the midst of all of that, I found myself in discouragement. And that discouragement comes from forgetting the promises of God and also the very definition of the word resolution. And for those that are uh, keeping score at home, 
I'm working to, to not be snarky about New Year's resolutions. This is a joyous message of New Year's resolutions. I'm actually going to celebrate making New Year's resolutions. So just letting you know on the front end, that is my attempt. What I've forgotten, though, is something that, that this new year and the whole idea of new year and new, year, new Year's resolutions can bring back to life for me something that we find in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. I understand going to Lamentations to talk about a joyful moment. Just stick with me for a second. The, this book of laments, possibly, probably authored by the prophet Jeremiah, points me to a celebration that I actually can grasp a hold of for New Year's Eve. After lamenting about the pressure, the hardship, the attacks, the calamity that he had endured, Jeremiah says this in Lamentations 3. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I, when I remember this. I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. We can pause for an amen right there. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Yes, sir. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's a dang good lament right there. This lamenting is fitting. It's a fitting end of the year and a, a great beginning to our next year, to this 2024 that's to come. The reminder I have from this is that discouragement, hopelessness, snarky, defensive sarcasm, all of that are fruits of a life that I no longer have access to. In truth, they're fruits of death rather than fruits of life. They're fruits of the opposite of growth. I can't think of another way to say opposite of growth than death. A new year calls me to remember a new life, a new life that Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians. If it seems we were crazy, it's to bring glory to God. I love that line right there. Imagine if that is the, the line that defines the Billings Vineyard Church. If it seems like we are crazy, it's to bring glory to God. Amen. And if we were in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love can... Christ's love controls us. Whoa, what another awesome description that we could hold on to. Imagine if we could say that it's Christ's love that control us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ.
Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The new life that Paul talks about in this passage is as much as a battleground as it is a reality for me. The battle is in the approach to the fight also as much as it is in the fight itself. And this brings us to the discussion and a potential paradigm shift as it relates to New Year's resolutions. Now often, I approach developing into the new life as as keeping the dead man dead so that the new life can gain fruit. I focus on keeping that death dead rather than looking at the life. Rather than thrive in new life, I typically flounder in fruitless attempts to keep what is supposed to be dead really, truly dead. I work harder to put more dirt on the grave to keep that hand from coming out, you know, in some weird, like, zombie-looking thing. At least that's how it's working in my head right now as I'm talking about it. But I work so hard to keep that dead thing dead, I don't actually ever step into the realization of new life. And so my New Year's resolutions are junk. Because I am focused on the wrong thing, even if I see some initial uh, uh, success in keeping the dead man dead, even if, if it stays dead for a bit, a little bit of success, my efforts every time end in failure. Every time. Failure, discouragement, hopelessness that leaves me feeling like I'm further away from Jesus because I can't just be good. No matter how hard I try, I can't keep the dead man dead. Laid bare by this realization, we find the reasons that New Year's resolutions are easy to be sarcastic about, defensively sarcastic, because they typically don't last beyond the end of January, at least they don't for me. The reason that many resolutions fail is because we're not addressing the real issue. We're only addressing a symptom of the real issue. In addressing a symptom, we're really trying to keep the dead man dead rather than experience a thriving new life. Now this reality for me, it manifests in this way. Taking a gander at some of the most common New Year's resolutions, and you can do a a Google search, um, but you probably already know what most of them are. Um, I know them well because I failed them well. Most of them. I've even like looked at, oh, I haven't tried that one. Maybe this will be the one that turns the, the ship. Nope, failed it too. Each of them, though, I have used to address symptoms rather than summoning the courage to address the root of my junk the root that traps me in death and denies me entry into a reality of new life. Honestly, sometimes it's easier even if I know it's going to fail because it looks like I'm doing something, even though I know in my heart I'm not. So for example, 
in the past, this was in the past, I resolved to go to the gym and get into shape. But let's be real about that for a second. I'm not pudgy because I don't go to the, to the gym as much as I used to. I'm pudgy because I'm addicted to sugar. I mean, that's the real, that's the truth of the matter. I'm addicted, I even, like, the, the things that, when I talk about sugar, it even, like, if, if we were to say that about anything else, we'd be like, dude, you got a problem. <laughs> I say things like, I need, oh, we'll get back to that. Actually, we probably shouldn't get back to that. Why don't we just go ahead and deal with it since I'm talking about dealing with things, right? Man, I tell you, when I was young and spry, I went to the gym, but I was still addicted to sugar. So it didn't look like it. Now, not so young, not so spry. Now I can tell I'm addicted to sugar. And it sounds funny to say that. I'm like making a joke about it, but it's true and it's scary. I have an addiction, but because it isn't a high-profile one that leads me to be on the radar, radar of law enforcement, doesn't get me into legal trouble, I'm not going to lose my job over it, well, I, maybe not, I, the board members are here, so, um, but it doesn't seem that dangerous. I can ignore the fact that something has power over me. Think about that. I can ignore that something has power over me, something that's driving me to poor health, something that drives me towards addicted behavior. I can ignore that because it doesn't seem so bad. But then when it's like, well, maybe I should do something about it. I'm going to take this seriously because I know in the back of my head, I know this is a big issue. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to decide to go to the gym. Or actually, you know, not only just going to the gym, this is what I'm going to do. My New Year's resolution. I'm going to go to the gym and then I'm going to deny myself dessert. That seems logical, right? This is a logical approach. But because those approaches focus on the symptom rather than the root of the issue, they're not going to provide me lasting freedom. How long is that actually going to last? The first morning that the alarm goes off, I'm like, no, the gym's done, and they're not going to see me until March when I'm starting to think about like, oh man, it's going to be summertime, need to get in shape. And then after, imagine this, have you ever done this? Have you ever had a good day? Like a good day, like you, like you burned calories, and you ate really good, you had one of them salads, like you ate like, a, like, a, like the thing that we're supposed to eat, and you're like, man, I deserve this. And so then you get a little bit of dessert. And then it was easy. Well, you know what? Oh, here's what we're going to have. We're going to have a cheat day. You ever have a cheat day? If that's not evidence of getting, getting your hind end whooped by a New Year's resolution, I don't know what is. I mean, we even call it a cheat day. Oh, these do not provide lasting freedom because we're focusing on the symptom. Many of the most common addictions are the most common emerging addictions in our culture fit this paradigm. The fastest growing addictions don't seem dangerous because they're not treated like life and death issues. Video game addiction, cell phone addiction, social media addiction, 
uh, porn and sex addiction, internet addiction. Usually these are addressed by resolutions like going, like the cold turkey method, I'm going to stop altogether, or by creating some kind of a rationing system that if I just ration it, this is going to work itself out. So we're either going to cut it out altogether or we're going to set our sin on a schedule. Yeah. But if the root cause of this addiction isn't addressed, these resolutions are going to fail. And that failure over time can lead to a defeatism that, that allows the root of death to grow deeper and deeper into our lives. This is where we even see separation from, from God because we just can't be good enough. We start looking at things like our worthiness. We start looking at, at our identity. We start looking at like, how could we be loved? We start hearing the lies of the enemy. Not the lie, or not the, not the, the voice that, that says, beloved treasure, but the voice that says you're trash. Prepping for this Sunday together, I was talking to Jenna about this, and, and she shared a perspective that's worthy of some consideration. Think about the way death serves as corruption of life. If we, if we look at death as corrupting life, we can begin to build a paradigm for New Year's resolutions that don't look at the symptom but go to the root. In the same way that death is the shadow side of life, there is a shadow side, there's a corrupted side of the promises and the gifts that represent separation from God that we see sin and death. So we've got the, the life that is in the gifts of God, life in the promises of God. There's a shadow side of those that, that the world, that the culture, that the enemy uses to lie to us that draws us into death. We have what is good and we have what is corrupted. Consider lust. What a great way to finish 2023. We'll talk about lust. We'll get lusty for our last moments together in 2023. Now, lust is often considered in contrast with love. I don't think this is correct. I don't think that lust and love are, are in contrast with each other. I don't think that they're related. I don't think that this is the, the you know, opposite sides of the same coin. I think that this is an error to think of lust and love along a, a spectrum. Lust is the shadow side of worship, not the shadow side of love. Lust is the death side of relationship. Lust is about satisfying a craving, about, uh, about gratification, about taking, about consumption. Often, lust can be manifest through sexual desire, but this is only one of the places that lust leads to death. Maybe another way to say that this is lust is a symptom of death in more areas than just desire, sexual desire. The Apostle James puts it this way in James chapter 1. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. There's a progression that begins with craving and temptation leads to an enticement. You ever been enticed? I've been enticed. The problem with being enticed is it's kind of cool, even though you know it's not. 
It's enticing. And after the enticing, we are dragged into death through actions that then become habitual. So using lust as our continued example this morning, enticement, especially in our culture, I think is found in consumption. Lust, often when we read about it in scripture, is presented as a passionate desire, which is why we can see that it is a shadow side of worship. Unhealed passions like pride, envy, gluttony, ambition, anger, these unhealed passions feed death in ourselves and in our relationships because to satisfy these passions leads to, to the need to take and then the lead, it leads to the need to take more. When we approach a relationship from the standpoint of what we get, when we maintain the relational dynamic of what we get from a relationship, we are also maintaining death in that relationship. It seems like life for a time, because in truth, when we are in a relationship, when, when, we, are, when we are getting, when we're taking, when our dynamic is to get from a relationship, the softest way to say it is we're a parasite. Parasitically, we are drawing life from somebody until they're dead, and then we can go to the next one. In our culture, this is considered, you know, like, oh, they're drama, you know. This is death. How we approach our relationship with God, from the standpoint of, are we there to get or are we there to give, can serve as a metric for us, but also how we as the church train and disciple to follow Jesus demonstrates if we're leading to life or if we're leading to death. What we do matters. A few weeks ago, in the blog series that comes out on Wednesday, uh, I wrote about the dangers of, of the prosperity gospel, the dangers of seeker sensitivity, and the, and the dangers of individualism, and how all of this relates to a posture uh, towards love, life, and death. Now, in that, in that blog, I talked about seeker sensitivity. Uh, I talked about this movement that came out of the, the mid-1970s. Um, th- th- this was an applied theory of evangelism. And it sought to remove religious barriers by removing the discipleship focus on personal responsibility and, and creating felt-need programs. These programs would serve congregations, and they would be attractive to those seeking to be served. This meant that, that people would be met. They'd be met in a manner that was relevant to culture by enticing them with the promise of consumption. Cultural relevance and, and, and 
production quality are really important parts of this model because it is about consumption. This was made famous by a man named Bill Hybels in the Willow Creek Association. And while the, the intent of this theory and the, the intent of, of this building association was good, it was admirable, it was an attempt to find a way to present the gospel to people that would not otherwise have heard it. He was providing an entry point. The problem was one of depth. The problem was feeding a symptom rather than going after roots that hold people in, de in death. About after 30 years of data, Hybels and the Willow Creek Association noticed that huge crowds would come. They were emotionally invested in Sunday services, but they were not actively engaged in becoming like Jesus. After commissioning a study that was released uh, in the book uh, titled Reveal, How Are You? Hybels offered this conclusion. He said, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people, how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. Now, many good things, many good things have come from churches like Willow Creek. Many good things have come from approaches that find new entry points for people that would never darken the door of a church. So we can hold up Willow Creek and, and the place that they take in the American church and all of the things that we can take from them, everything that, that, that they've taught us, all the stuff that, that we, but what we do with it then matters. Because if we're just taking from them, we are consumers. We see the danger of presenting a model that focuses on symptoms rather than roots. Satisfying lust cannot lead to good worship. Satisfying the urge to consume will not lead to sharing what we've been given. So how do we lead, lean into 2024 with resolutions that express new life rather than covering symptoms of death? I think a good starting place is embracing new life by applying one of the definitions of the word resolution. The definition I recommend we begin with is the action of solving a problem, dispute, or contentious matter. That's a good definition of resolution, to actually resolve something, to end something. The contentious matter, matter I would encourage that we call an end to is the roots of the wounds that hold us into death. Rather than approach trying to fix consumption, rather than approach trying to fix the symptom, let's kill the root. The beginning 
of killing the root. I just had something pop into my head, and it's always dangerous when it's in the middle of a sermon, but we'll call this Roundup for the Soul. That's, <laughs> but even that probably is more contentious than it needs to be. Um, man, that's actually, you know, I almost stopped myself. I almost made it, and I didn't. So Roundup from the Soul is actually going to, now that's going to become a thing, and I apologize. So uh, we're going to kill the root. And we start with killing the root with a consideration of our identity because we cannot kill the root without looking at our identity. So let's go back to that first James passage and kind of expand the context a little bit and maybe pull a little bit more out of it than what we just utilized. So again, starting in verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, become his prized possession. To kill the root, we have to know the truth. And so if you hear those words and they fall on a stone heart and just bounce off, if you hear those words and in some way, shape, or form, you can reject it and say, well, maybe for them, but not for me. If you look back at your past and say, there's just no way. We'll get to that in a second. Because here's the point, prized possession. Prized possession is what the creator of the world calls you. Prized possession. I like the way that it's written in Ephesians, and I know I talk about this a lot because it matters, but the Greek word is poema. And what we can pull from that word that we are called is original masterpiece, the work of art that defines the artist. This is what your true identity is. This is what the living God calls you. This is our true identity. If it doesn't feel like who you are, the first root to pull, that we can pull right now, the root of corrupted identity needs to die. So well, how do we do that? The answer is prayer and ministry together that beckons us towards the, the inner voice of love, an action that leads us to a real encounter with the living God. Not something we can do on our own. And this is why on Sunday mornings we call people up and offer prayer because this is the place where we can do this, where we can actually participate in a real encounter with the one that calls you beloved, with the one 
that calls himself your father. And in this encounter, we see the root of corrupted identity killed. But after we kill that root, another root shows itself the root of unworthiness. This is a really effective lie. Really effective lie. Maybe one of the most effective lies ever told is the lie of unworthiness. We feel unworthy because in reality, in death, we are unworthy. Before new life, it's true, we are unworthy. And so it's easy to look back over the period of our life where we can say, I was dead and feel unworthy because of the consequences of that life. In new life, though, we find that our worthiness is not found in our actions. Our worthiness is not found in our past. Our worthiness is not found in who we thought we were. Paul writes to the church in Rome, when we were utterly helpless, anybody ever been utterly helpless? When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. We notice in that that we didn't do anything to make that happen. We were helpless and Christ came. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps, for, I'm sorry, now most people would not be willing to die for an unright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I love how we can pull this root. Because it is one of the coolest acts of defiance that we can ever take. The liar is looking you in the face and saying you're unworthy. And we can look right back into his ugly mug and say you're right. But he's worthy. There is nothing that kills that root better than the truth. And what a ridiculous lie that would be so effective when we can look the enemy in the face and say, you're right, that's true. He's not, deal with him. Applying all of this to this theme of experiencing new life in a new year. Understanding our identity is a new route that can take the place of that old one that we just killed. So together, as we are digging up the roots of death with the assurance of our identity as a beloved of God, we can think about a lot of this stuff, the way that we're presenting this stuff, the way that the things that we're talking about, we can think about it as, as maybe some harsh words. 
Maybe it was, it was too harsh to bring up some stuff about seeker sensitivity. We can remember, though, what Paul said about harsh words in 2 Corinthians, and we can use this as another pillar, another uh, platform, maybe some, some more scaffolding for where we go in the new year together. We can look at it from this angle in 2 Corinthians 7. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you are not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. This is the true picture of resolution. This is the best passage for New Year's resolution that I'm aware of. A firm decision that flows from the quality of being determined and resolute. Another definition of resolution that we can hold on to defined by Paul in 2 Corinthians. So as we enter 2024 together, let's focus on the resolve to feed the roots of life as the roots of death are defeated by the love of Jesus. Now, because I don't want to leave us in a place of incompletion, how do we feed the roots of life? We've got to answer that question. How do we do this? How do we do this together? How do we feed the roots of life? First, we do it by remembering. We remember. We remember what the Father has done. And we also remember that he's not done yet. We hold on to that reality, remembering what he's done and remembering that he ain't done yet. He has a plan. He invites us to participate. Rather than us extending an invitation to him to be a part of pieces of our lives, pieces of our plans, we remember what he has done by accepting his invitation to participate in his will. So what does that participation look like? It starts with accepting what he offers and demonstrating that acceptance by making it available to others. Get to give. But also, it's lived with others in a community that is together moving towards new life. So we remember, we accept and we do it together. This, partic- this participation creates a space for humility, a space that allows us to practice 
the things that we receive on each other as we get to give. And so as we rub off on each other, we have the opportunity, we provide each other with the opportunity to forgive as a gift. My gift to you will be that you will get to forgive me at some point in 2024. (laughs) We do all of this together. We do all of this as the church. And we see the, the roots of new life extend into all the places that we're gonna be in the time between the Sundays, not just here. So our 2024, our resolution as a church family can become this. Together, we remember, we accept, and we participate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for another year in your grace. And I pray as we reflect over the year that we would see all that you've done to demonstrate we are your beloved. I pray that, that from that place that we would be, begin to turn from reflection. And as we turn from reflection, I pray that we would turn to imagination and vision for 2024. I pray that we would see all of the places that you will send us. I pray that we would know that you are there already and we will find you there. I pray that you would help us together to remember, to accept, and to participate. In Jesus' name.